lesson, there we go, lesson number three uh, in our series uh, on overcoming uh, sinful fear and anxiety. We've gradually sort of been laying some, some groundwork, a foundation, uh, and a framework that I believe will help us understand these uh, common to man issues. Uh, so far, we've looked at some basic principles regarding emotion, namely the usefulness of emotion to motivate, motivate us to an end or to, to prepare us to act, uh, as well uh, as we, we've also looked at the process by which we experience emotion. Uh, this last Sunday, we looked uh, at the life, and we saw these things in the life of the prophet Jonah. Uh, we walked through those chapters just sort of in a, in a very uh, sort of a, a high-altitude way, a survey of that book, and saw Jonah's uh, anger, which Jonah equated uh, with, uh, sort of equated his anger to God's anger against sin, uh, except for the fact that Jonah was angry about the reality that God withdrew his anger against the people of Nineveh. So we saw his anger, we we, we also observed what displeased Jonah, uh, and we saw what pleased him, uh, what brought him joy and delight, And, of course, the text tells us that the thing that he was excited about was this plant that God had appointed uh, for shade uh, and for Jonah's relief, which God uh, destroyed with a worm, uh, which went uh, made Jonah turn again back to this um, uh, issue of anger uh, to the point. He says that he was angry to the point uh, even to death. And, and in all these things, what we were saying is that Jonah did not have an emotional problem, although his emotions seemed to, to vacillate and up and down and change on a dime. It really wasn't his emotions that were the problem, it was his thinking that was the problem. Uh, it was more about what Jonah expected and what Jonah wanted and what he believed and knew about the Lord and how he interpreted the situation in his life what he thought he deserved, uh, what he thought others deserved, and his understanding of God's purposes. Uh, which is why Scripture, we said, places so much emphasis on renewing the mind, uh, rejecting the lies of the world, or embracing and living by God's, uh, unchanging, God's unchanging truth. So uh, the Scriptures tell us about emotions. They, they're certainly mentioned many times in Scripture, but we don't have explicit places where we're told to renew them uh, or to necessarily to change them. The assumption is that if we renew our minds and we're thinking uh, God's thoughts and we're, we're thinking biblically, then our emotions in some respect will sort of fall in line. They'll sort of, they'll find their proper place as we, as we focus on uh, renewing our minds and thinking and, and meditating on the truth. Uh, then we looked at the example of Christ, who is our ultimate model when it comes to handling our emotions. Christ, who, who, re, who faced a rejection, uh, was troubled in his spirit at times, who was sorrowful uh, and distressed and experienced anguish, but never wavered, uh, never sinned, never turned back, uh, who always loved God, who always loved others, and was always entrusting himself to God, who is just and sovereign and good. And then we moved on to examine more carefully the topic of fear, uh, which we said isn't always a bad or sinful thing. Uh, there is the fear of the Lord, that is, uh, which is commanded. Uh, there's a fear of danger, which can be useful uh, if it's uh, serving sort of a, a, as a protective 
uh, mechanism or device. Uh, then there are normal forms of concern or caution or, or prudence. On the other hand, there are clearly sinful kinds and expressions of fear. Uh, we mentioned some of those, cowardice, uh, timidity. There's, there's also panic, which is characterized by a lack of self-control. There is the fear of man, which the Scriptures, that's a whole nother. I mean, you could just go to the Scriptures and just focus on that one thing alone. There's so much to be said about, about um, uh, the, the fear of man, or you might flip it around. As we said, there's a connection between love and fear. You say it's the fear of man or it's the love of approval. You know, it's just two sort of different ways of looking at that. Um, uh, and there is a fear that is rooted in unbelief that drives us away from God in obedience that leads to further irresponsibility um, that is more influential in the moment than the fear of God and hinders us from loving Christ and loving others. Uh, times, times when we have unbelieving thoughts that lead to discontented thoughts and a sense of uncertainty and fearful thoughts rather than living with a sense of certainty. And so we're concerned about this uncertainty in our life and then we begin to think to ourselves, God is not enough, God has not done enough for me. And then that stirs up that lust for more uh, and, and to cause us to look beyond God for the solution and the answer to that. So there's discontented thoughts that then stir up these fears, anxieties, anger, all kinds of, of, um, of emotions, rather than settling on this certainty that I am safe in God's hands. I am safe in God's care. God will never leave me. God is enough. God has done enough for me, which leads to contentment. Uh, I, I don't need anything more to do God's will today. God has given me all things pertaining to life and godliness, which then leads to a freedom to serve Christ and serve others. So at that point, if, I'm, if I have this, rather than dealing with the, uh, or focusing on the uncertainties and then grasping for solutions to that, it's really about uh, focusing on the certainties we have in Christ, which settles our heart, which brings that peace into our hearts, and then frees us to, to love others and to put all of our, our effort into serving God and serving others today. Uh, now, it's important, I think, also to understand that we live in a society that promotes uh, fear. Promotes fear. On, on an individual level, um, when someone acts in a, in a particular way, a consistent way, d- doing something over and over again, even if it's self-destructive, they do it because they are getting something out of it. Uh, They may not like some of the consequences that go along with it. They may not like the symptoms, but on some very important level, that works for them. And part of the discussion, uh, this discussion has to be around what it it is that that they are getting. So when you're talking to people, even if the things that they're doing seem to be self-destructive, there is is something that they're getting out of that thing that they're they're doing. And And that's also true on this sort of bigger level, and this is sort of a society level as well. If a society continues to highlight dangers in such a way that it produces fear in its citizens, then that is a strategy that works for someone, right? Somebody is getting something advantageous out of that. And in the same way as with an individual, we need to ask the question of our society or culture, who is it that benefits from this? And how do they benefit from our fear? And more times than not, it's about 
economics, right? I mean, a lot of what, of what drives this is, 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 uh, is money, right? For example, you think about security and alarm services, right? They have a huge interest in you being afraid of all of those dangerous people out there who are dying to break into your home, but probably won't if you have one of those little signs in your mulch bed, right, that says home protected by so-and-so security company, right? So there, there, is, a, there is an economic gain, right, to, in a sense, uh, cause people to, to fear, right? They want to get them focused on the, uh, all those what-ifs and possibilities because it's to their advantage to do that. Uh, another example, the insurance industry, right, an industry that relies on us being prudently fearful, but invites us to hedge our bets against some kind of loss, whether you think that of that loss in terms of your car or your home or your health or even your life. Uh, and there are, are new kinds of, of policies for new threats or dangers. Uh, I mean, you can get a policy now to protect yourself against fraud or identity theft. So it's not just about um, uh, your, uh, your physical possessions, but it's uh, sometimes even some of these, uh, you might say, things that are more intangible. Uh, again, it's not necessarily wrong or evil or foolish to pay for these kinds of services, but just realize that alarm companies and insurance companies are not charitable organizations, right? They are businesses with investments, one of them being your fearfulness, and they have a, a serious bottom line, and, and, and they would not do what they do if they were not profitable, uh, same thing with I- entertainment industry, right? I mean, Hollywood does a pretty good job of naming your fears, uh, and promoting them, uh, we went to see um, was it a quiet place. So you might have seen that movie. It's good. It's a it's, it's a scary movie. Uh, there's not a lot to it. <laughs> there's not a, certainly it's very quiet. Uh, it's it's very. Um, for those of you who've seen it, you have a hard time eating your popcorn uh, and chewing your peanut M and M's because you can hear everyone in the whole theater chewing their peanut M and M's. And so you've got your, it's like you've got your drink and you've got your popcorn and for 30 minutes you just don't do anything because <laughs> you don't want to be the guy that's crunching and, and slurping in the back. So, they, right, they, they play off these things, right? They, they want you to feel thrilled and shocked. Uh, but again, it's, they, they, don't just, they don't just spend all this money to make movies and then just say, here, enjoy this for free, right? I mean, they, there's, a, there's a hook, right? They want to make money. Local news, same thing. Uh, these no, local news outlets still competing for viewership. Uh, They want to catch your attention to maintain their ratings. So rather than just tell you what's lurking in your basement, they do this. At 6 o'clock, they have some advertisement that says something like this. What's lurking lurking in your basement? Find out at the 10 o'clock news. Right? I mean, they want to just tell you what it is. So you, you hear that ad, and for the next few hours, you're thinking to yourself, what is lurking in my basement? <laughs> I mean, it's like, and they, and they want to grab you and keep you interested and appeal to your fearfulness by making you aware of hazards in whatever, on the highway or in the supermarket or the local restaurant that you need to avoid at all costs. So they're play, playing on your fears as a way of involving you in their program and strengthening their bottom line. Then think about how fear motivates you to go out and spend your money. Uh, for example, uh, a, a, a mom who's, who's going to, uh, or, or a woman who's going to be a new mother in a few short months goes to a baby superstore, goes up and down the aisles packed with all the things that she will need to make sure that her child will be safe and well cared for, 
right? So we have a baby monitor, a baby gate, an air purifier, an antibacterial spray, things to protect them when they are in their crib, when they are playing, when they are in the kitchen, when they are in the car, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because you have to buy these things, right? You have to have them. You have to fill your shopping cart because you're afraid, right? You're thinking through all these possibilities, and it's sometimes not just that. It's not just about their safety. Many times there's this thing that plays in that if you don't do this, you're a bad mom, right? So there's not only a fear of the actual possible danger that comes to your children, but sometimes it's also the fear of you not having those things and then something happens and then all the moms in the church on Facebook start saying, can you believe that she didn't have a so-and-so? I mean, come on, right? I mean, she didn't have one of those things. They're, they're, they're over at Babies R Us. You can, is that even in business anymore? Okay. All right. Never mind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They didn't scare people enough. Uh, didn't do enough business. So, again, that's just one reason that drives a lot of these things, financial gain. Uh, another sort of benefit of fear is social control. Uh, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to understand that a fearful population is easier to govern and that they can be easily manipulated by those in power. So you think about how just, and we see this every day, really, the, how politicians are jockeying for power, uh, on one hand, they talk about all the good things that they have done in their past. On the other, they talk about all the horrible things that their opponent has done in their past and is likely to do in the future if they get elected. And so they, this is what you hear, and you we're going to start hearing it. We're already hearing it. You're going to hear it more and more, right, as we get closer to November. They're going to raise your taxes. They're going to destroy our economy. If you don't vote for me and you vote for them, your kids won't have a chance. They're weak, they're, they're weak on national security. They're reckless in their conduct. So this is how it goes, right? This is the tactic in politics, that if you can't woo your voters, you scare them, right? It's like if you can't, if you can't woo them by other means, it's like you create and you play on these fears. And so your vote, in a sense, is garnered based on your fears of what might happen. So individuals and groups can employ fear as a tool to maintain power, uh, they can also use danger to promote a solidarity sort of within the group to sort of create this identity to, to hold us together by developing an enemy or a perception of an identity. So there's this, this group out there and they're not us and they are out to get us uh, to promote uh, outside dangers in order to cause people to circle the wagons and define who is in and who is out. Uh, people are trying to figure out where they, where they belong, who loves them, how they fit in by identifying those fearful others and distancing ourselves from them. We become connected with like-minded people. So we sort of, sort of, they, they'll use fear sometimes just on these sort of social ways to kind of solidify a particular group and to say this is, you need to be with us and you need to be against them or against that particular thing, other thing because it's a threat. So what are we saying? We're saying our culture and our society and groups and individuals within society have a lot to gain by you being frightened, by you being scared, by you thinking about uh, these, these dangers. Oddly enough, society also often comes up with the solutions, right? So they, they sort of perpetuate and they generate all these concerns and fears and then they come up with the solutions for dealing with fear and, or for dealing with danger, one of the ways that we deal with our fears is by trying to create some barrier against our, ourselves 
Uh, let me put these up here so you'll have them. So these are just some ways that that happens, right? One of the ways is we just sort of build this wall or this barrier between ourselves and the thing that threatens us or the danger. So we sort of draw a line around ourselves. Like with insurance policies or alarm systems, we try to build a hedge of protection around ourselves. Or in some cases, we actively pursue isolating the danger and drawing a line around it as well. So we've just a very simple example, just be software filters, right? We, we invest in those things that are supposed to scan all of our incoming files and protect our computers from being attacked by viruses or malicious programs. And I'm thankful, right? I mean, I'm, I'm thankful for my software filter. But we have to think about this protective stance that we often take, and, and we have to consider how this protective posture affects the way that we live. Uh, Any time that we have a strategy for dealing with life, that doesn't stay sort of compartmentalized. And so when you think about these other areas in your life and how you react to those dangers and fears and threats, those things bleed into other areas. And if we continue down that path, what we end up doing is viewing all dangers as something that need to be isolated. And we begin to think, how can I guard and protect myself against this thing, right? So this becomes a, a pre, sort of a preoccupation with, with some people. They're constantly, that's the lens through which they look at life, or what are these things that I need to guard and protect myself against, which again, is not a inherently a sinful thing, a bad thing, because there are certain things, obviously, even from the, the scriptures themselves, we need to be alert to, we need to be thinking about possible dangers. There are real dangers. There are real spiritual dangers. We're told to be sober. We're told to be alert concerning certain things. But I'm talking about that sort of, um, that, that where it, it's, it's everything. And, and everything is almost equally dangerous, right? Where there's, there's not really any discernment. There's not really any nuancing with those things. But, but we just see these threats and then we, we just decide we, we've got to distance ourselves and get away from those things at all costs which gets a little tricky because not everything is a clear danger. So maybe it's an unknown thing. Uh, and then I begin to treat all unknown things as dangers rather than opportunities. So I just simply avoid them. Right? I, I steer clear away from those, uh, those things. I, I no longer even entertain the idea that something which might be dangerous or maybe not could be a wonderful opportunity to serve and, and love God. So this, this, this should also cause us to think about the fact that barriers are never 100% effective. That is to say, there's probably some 19-year-old kid in, a, in his basement trying to figure out a way right now to get around my antivirus software and internet security program, right? So I've got these, I've got these things to sort of uh, protect myself from those threats, but yet there's there are people that are always trying to do that, and they, and they may have some success in doing it. Right now, uh, terrorists are, are trying to figure out a way to get around the barriers that we've erected to protect our country. Some of our protective strategies foil those plans um, of, of, of criminals and terrorists, but every once in a while, our protective strategies don't work. And some wicked plot is carried out and people are killed. So it's just, you've got to think about this, the, the reality that you can, you can do some of these things. But it, but it comes down to this, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, it's this issue of entrustment. It's this issue of what are you ultimately relying in? Because you can put those things in place, but 
again, if they're keeping you from fulfilling the great commandment, right? If they're keeping you from loving the Lord and loving others and serving others, and if you're putting all your hope and stock in these things, that if you just do the right things, you're going to be protected and safe, you've got a, you've got a major problem because these things are never 100% uh, foolproof. Another way that we, we deal with our fears is to attempt to prepare for the worst possible outcome. So we realize we, we can't prevent all bad things from happening, so we try to get ready for as many event, eventualities as we possibly can. Uh, some of you weren't even, well, I would imagine all of you were alive at this point, but some of you may have been very young when this happened. Some of you, this will be very vivid because um, it was something that we experienced individually or as a family, but it was also something that because we've been in the, this church for 20 or so years since it started, then we sort of experienced this with other families as well. But how many of you remember Y2K? Okay. I, I, like, I mean, not like just like remember that it happened, but how many of you were caught up in it, right? And so this was one of those things where, I mean, we were sort of dealing with this very talked about, very well-known uh, potential thing that was going to happen, um, and, and we were talking with other families about it, and so there was a lot of interaction with with Christian families and, and it, what are you doing and what, do you take it seriously and, and all, those, all those kinds of things. And for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, <laughs> say, what is Y2K? Well, this is, when, this is when the year turned over to 2000 and everybody panicked about what, what's going to happen because, primarily because we were so dependent on technology, right, and, and our computers. And so people thought, boy, uh, a lot of the computers were not, when they were built and designed, were not programmed in their calendars to actually, there was, there was not a, a way to roll over to the year 2000. And so the, the, the thought is this, these things, this is going to create a huge problem. All these, all these computer systems are going to crash and shut down. The power grid's going to go down. Food supply lines are going to be interrupted. And so people started to store up and prepare, right? For, they got food, they got they got water. I mean, they started going to the camping camping gear stores, and you know, you know what is this dehydrated? What what is? So now I got to get that, and then I got to get a water. I got to get a purifier, and I got to get a bo- something to boil my water, and all this kind of stuff, right? Camping gear and batteries, all that sort of thing that we. A lot of people just got out, man. They're like, I mean, we need to just move up to, to Blue Ridge and and get a get a shed or a, 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 a something. Just get away from it all. Uh, buy up all the ammunition and the guns, um, yeah, all that kind of stuff, so that we can survive, right? Because our infrastructure is going to be so uh, so messed up, and then we'll just do that until everything is restored. But there's a subtle message that gets communicated, I think, in times like that, that one of the, one of the worst things that could possibly happen to you is to have your way of life disrupted. Uh, in other words, that that... Just, just to have an, a sort of an, an upset, a, uh, uh, and, and it can be a big thing like that. I mean, obviously, people were making, some people were making big plans, uh, and some people still have buckets of, of wheat berries. <laughs> I think they're still trying to, I mean, where they had stocked up, you know, water and supplies like that. And I'm not being critical because we did a little bit of that, right? I and mean, we, 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 we thought about what's, what's, but we had this discussion of, how, you know, what, what, it's a possibility, right? So we're not... We don't need to just like completely ignore it, but there, it, we, we understood there's a, there, we could go overboard with this, right? And at the end of the day, nothing may happen. So again, it's, it's what's going on in our hearts. But there's a, when we begin to think of this, I'm saying there's, a, there's a, a problem in that if we're not careful, what's really going on in our hearts is that we just don't want anything to disrupt our comfort, right? We just don't want anything to disrupt 
our way of living. And, and we see that one, one, of the, one of the worst things in our lives would be to have the things that, that we are used to no longer available to us. And so again, there's this sort of undercurrent of, of that kind of perspective and attitude. And as followers of Christ, that's just not a biblical way of thinking, right? Not at all. And in the same way that a, 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 protective, a pr- protective stance has no limit, right? In other words, you have to ask this question, how many protective layers are enough, right? So we, we have to realize that, that when it comes to preparing for the future, there isn't any objective limit to when you've prepared enough. For instance, if, you, if you're preparing for a, ca- a catastrophic event like Y2K, how much food do you need to stockpile? Is seven days worth, is that going to be enough? Well, what about two months, right? So it's, you just got to understand, you, you go down this path, at some point you've got you to stop, right? But then again, if, that's what, if you put your hope in those things and not in Christ and His care for you, then you're going to, as soon as you draw the line and go, okay, that's it, that's it. You're going to go, then you're going to be in the room by yourself in your recliner and then you're going to start thinking, but is it? Is it enough? Maybe I need to go out and get more and more. So there's just no, really no end to that. So when you start down that road, it's very hard to draw a line. And it's very easy for a person to go from being prudent to being paranoid. We also can attempt to deal with our fears by flooding our minds with information unintended. Um, Again, the internet can be a great resource for us when it comes to dealing with our fears. It can lead us to a lot of helpful advice about what to do when we we, we notice a strange spot on our skin or our children are, are, are struggling to read or our Bermuda grass is dying, right? I mean, I listened to every, yesterday morning, got out early, and, and that guy, um, Walter Reed, is that his name, Walter Reed? Reed? What's his name, Reeves? He does a little garden show, you know, and the people are calling in saying, I got this problem, my plant's dying or, or you know, too much water, not enough water, you know, too many weeds, and so he's giving advice on WSB on the radio about, about those things. That's not a problem, right? We can go online, right? We can Google whatever it is that we're interested in. And we think then that because we have gotten more information, we actually know how to handle this issue. But, but what is the challenge of having so much information? In other words, where you, you get out there and you, get, you just start stockpiling information, 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 what tends to happen is that information at some point begins to conflict. And sometimes what happens is you start down this path, you get information, but then all of a sudden something pops up and it's, it's the, somebody telling you that this actually is the worst thing you could possibly do, right? And so there's these other perspectives on a lot of these issues. And so you can Google something and you end up with over 2 million sites, right? And eventually you get all that information, but it begins to collide with itself, the fact that anyone can share nearly anything online makes it difficult for us to know what is actually accurate and useful information and what is not. So it's like there, there's so much information that it, it's, it's, it's just hard to know. Is it true? Is it hyperbole? Is it just a prank? Is it satire? I get, I get, I get, I don't know, how many of you have heard of the Babylon Bee? You heard of Babylon Bee? Okay, so this is sort of a, a Christian sort of satire sarcastic thing, but there are people that think the Babylon Bee is, is a real news. Like they can't, they don't get the satire, right? They don't get the joke. And so they read the headline and then they, they're actually like out there like telling people, did you know? 
And we were like, where did you hear that? And they're like, the Babylon Bee. And if they were familiar with it, they're like, that's just, a, that's just a joke, right? So, I mean, these were just the two from this week. Sarah Sanders finally resigns after being forced to defend Trump's statement that The Last Jedi is the best Star Wars film. <laughs> right? And, and people will, and there's some people that, it's like, there's so much information coming in. They, they, walk, they go, did you hear that, this, uh, that, that she resigned? They're like, really? I didn't hear that. What was that? I don't know. It was something about some Star Wars. I mean, Trump, Trump made some comment about Star Wars, and then, they, boom, he fired her, you know? And the thing is, people wouldn't, some people would go, well, okay. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, I mean, I can see her doing that, maybe him, I don't know. Horrified progressive suddenly realizes Mike Pence next in line for presidency. In other words, it's like that, 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 that the progressives that are hoping to impeach Trump, that it's like it all of a sudden occurs to them that if that happens, who's the next guy? Mike Pence. How's that going to work out? Yeah, so, but it's like, I mean, you see this on the web, and I'm saying some people just, they read the headline, if they don't, because if you read the articles, then it kind of becomes more obvious that they're just poking fun at different things. Um, so anyway, you need to check Babylon B out. Uh, if you get nothing else, you need to check Babylon B out. But you've, ex- you've exposed yourself, right? You've exposed yourself to all this information. Um, but ulti- ultimately, that decision is going to come back to you, which means that you are now cast into the role of the expert. You look at four of the two million sites, and you decide this is the person and story that I'm going to trust more than the others, and you become the arbiter of what you learn, right? So you become all of a sudden, and this is where people will read a couple things, and they, they speak as if they have... They're, they have authority, right? Because they saw, because they read it on the on the web, right? Yes. Yeah. We didn't know that it was wrong to go. What is that? What's that thing at the playground that you spin around and you can barely hang on? You know what I'm talking about? What is it called? A smear, is that a merry-go-round? Okay. Is it a merry-go-round? It's, I don't know. Well, we can have that debate later. But you know what I'm talking about, right? You get this thing going, and I mean, you're hanging on for dear land. We were thrown off that thing so many times. And I mean, now it's like you can't even put that on the playground anymore, right? It's, it's, it's too dangerous. So, you know, I mean, now the playgrounds are so sad, aren't they? You know, there's like, you go to the playground, and there's a bunch of mulch, and there's a beam that you can do this. And it's this high off the ground. You know, <laughs> kids are bored stiff, right? No monkey bars, right? They were a hazard. Again, what's, what, what's, what's driving that? Fear's driving that, folks. I'm telling you. I mean, these, these, decisions, that are, these decisions that are made and, 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 and that go through our society, a lot of them are driven by these things. And so I agree. Yeah, they got overwhelmed with all this information. That show, Monsters Inside Me? I mean... <laughs> I, you can't sleep it. Don't watch that show, right? You'll be thinking about every little, every little pain and every little thing in your body. You're like, I mean, these people have like, you know, 20-foot tapeworms inside of them. And these undiagnosed, they don't know what the symptoms are, where they're coming from. And, but again, you see the rare, right? You see the one out of a trillion, this happened to somebody. But again, it's that exposure that just says, oh my gosh, this, this thing could happen to me. So you, so you do that. You get all that information. Again, this has some serious deficiencies. 
It tends to lead to isolationism. It tends to lead you to lean on virtual counsel rather than on counsel of actual people that you know and that know you. Right? Because what you do is you get out there, you get the information, and you lean heavily on what someone says that you don't even know. Right? You have no relationship with. Rather than go to a trusted friend or someone or, and say, hey, what do you think? Because they know you. Right? I mean, they may say something to you or confront you about something. Right? They say, listen, I'm just telling you, you have a tendency to do this, this, and this. You need to be dealing with that. But you're just getting this sort of counsel from someone that you have no idea. They, have, they, they don't know the details. Um, again, WebMD. You know, I mean, it's like, uh, it's a, like Dr. Ryan, you know, it's like you go in and you, it's like, it's kind of like you go to your doctor and you already kind of know, you know, it's like you go and you're like, yeah, I think I have so-and-so and so-and-so. I mean, cause you have spent already, right? You're on, you've been on WebMD and, and the Mayo Clinic website, gotten all this information and, and it's funny, just, you know, <laughs> doctors just sort of indulge you, you know, Tim, Dr. Tim Ryan is who I go to, but it's just sort of like, like, so you want me to tell you what? You actually, you know, like, uh, so, you know, stop, stop coming in acting like you have a degree in this. Uh, but again, we, we, don't, we don't sometimes discern that. And, and if the solution to our fears is to simply gain knowledge, the problem is that you end up in the same conundrum that you do in those other scenarios. When do you have enough knowledge, right? So when do you, when, if it's all about protective measures, it's how much is enough. If it's all about knowledge, it's how much is enough. At what point is your information vast enough and current enough? Right? Because it changes all the time, right? Uh, coconut oil. Man, load up on it. It's great. Good for you. Then I hear on the radio this week, so-and-so comes out with this earth-shattering article, just strong against saying we're killing people by telling them to, to, to consume coconut oil. Right, so again, what happens is the information it starts it starts colliding, right? And so it's like this thing's good for you or bad for you, but then sometimes these in these things, just it could be years later, it could be months later, it could be weeks, it could be days, and you get a different take on it, right? What you thought was good is now bad. What you thought was bad is now good. So think about a person that goes to the doctor and gets a clean bill of health, and then six months later finds out they have cancer. They start to think, well, sh- should they have gone to the doctor more frequently? And how, how, how often should they have gone? Right? Once a month? Once a week? Again, if you're putting your stock and your hope in all those things, it's going to fail. If you think that information alone is going to help you deal with your fears, you put yourself in a difficult position of not knowing at what point you have enough. Uh, then there's this other sort of dealing with fears that the culture also encourages people to formulate and enforce some, some, sort, some form of bureaucratic legislation. We, we make rules, and those rules are supposed to guard us from the things that we fear. Uh, for just an example of this would be airline safety and those guidelines. I mean, the list of things that you can and cannot take on a plane seems, seems endless, right? So we just, we're going to legislate how we deal with our fears, right? So again, these things just, you can't do this, and you can do this, and this is going to make us safe, Right? So, again, there's reasonable things on that list, like firearms and knives and box cutters, right? But then there's those less reasonable things, at least in comparison to firearms, or things like a standard-sized tube of toothpaste, right, where you can't, you can't do that, and yet I think it's odd that we... They came, I was heard a, on the news this week about the airlines are trying to figure out about these emotional support animals, 
and which ones are allowed on the plane because what's happening is people are just abusing this, right? They're not actually service animals. They're just, they give people comfort, and so they want to take those animals onto the plane. And what they're saying is just that people are, they're not even that. People are just getting their pets on there, right? They just don't want to go through the hassle of doing everything that they would normally have to do to get uh, to transport their pet, and so they, they claim that this animal they have is, is providing emotional support for them, and so now the airlines are kind of cracking down on that, and it's essentially, I think it's pretty much an a, a, a industry-wide thing now from the Department of Transportation where it's just cats, dogs, but then this other one, I just can't, I just can't get my mind around. A miniature horse. Those are the three. Right, so no snakes and no spiders and no one. Of, one guy tried to bring on a, an article I read last night, a, 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 a peacock, and that was one of the ones that really stirred things up. Right, like okay, enough is enough. All right, you cannot bring a peacock onto the plane. Okay, but then I'm thinking that about a miniature horse. I mean, I looked up what is the size of a miniature horse, and so it's it's miniature compared to a. Regular size horse, which is about a thousand pounds, right? But these miniature horses are still Great Danes, right? I mean, they're big animals, but that's airline said you can do that. Okay, so just trying to say we can't take a tube of toothpaste. We can take a miniature horse. <laughs> I just, I'm just like something. It's just not, it's not clicking. It's not clicking. Okay. So this may be one of the least effective ways to combat what we think is scary. Um, and the rules are never, never able to sufficiently guard us. Why is that? Because people that are bent on dis- disruption and destruction will regularly find ways to get around the rules, regardless of how many we come up with or impose. So again, we do all these things, but that's not the ultimate answer. And what we have at the end of the day, these, these, um, these kinds of solutions tend to produce two different extremes. Um, some people just give up. Right? They just developed this hands-off approach to life. They, they, just, they, just re- they just say to themselves, the world is full of, of, of just, just too many dangers. I can't be consumed and caught up with all this stuff all the time. So you just sort of become fatalistic, apathetic, and, and, and simply ignore things that you, you can do little about, uh, which means in some cases when, when there are legitimate warnings around you, you just throw up your hands and don't try to do something about it because you don't believe it will make any kind of a real difference. The opposite extreme of that is for people to become excessively cautious, right? So, so you, don't, you don't just give up. You become hypervigilant, right? You increase your awareness of the dangers all around you. you. You take seriously every latest report, every scientific study, every scrap of information, every bit of gossip, and then you adjust your life accordingly. But a society that promotes fear and solutions to fear that are going to always uh, are, are going to always be inadequate, um, and, and when that's going on, ultimately it weakens the culture, right? It weakens society itself. So you walk away either wrongly believing that things outside of you are too big, that they're going to ruin your world and your life, that they have authority and power to harm you. And there's little that you can do about it, or you walk away with the impression that you are too big and that by sheer effort you will be able to keep the, bar- the barbarians at the gate and not allow them to ruin your, your life, that you are big enough to preserve your own life. And all of this affects our faith in some, some, some negative ways. 
this worldly way of thinking hinders us because we end up channeling our, our, our energy into things that, that our broader communities teach are dangerous. And so you have, we've talked about this dynamic. If pe- people around you, are, they fear certain things and you adopt their fears and then you spend a disproportionate amount of time and energy trying to get God to side with you against the things that you are frightened by. So you, you begin to pour in, pour too much energy into certain things, which means you inevitably concentrate less concern on other areas, areas that God actually thinks are more important. That is to say, fear distracts us. It, it often directs our attentions toward things we cannot change and at the same time diverts us away from the things that God has explicitly told us to practice in our lives. Moreover, this worldly way of thinking also hinders us because it teaches us that taking risks is dangerous and that being a risk, risk taker is bad by definition. So, so why is that? Why is risk taking bad? And, and, and the answer is because it takes you away from the so-called good life. Right, so everybody in their minds, you have this sort of a picture of of the good life, and 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 therefore we think of taking risk as a negative thing because it's going to interrupt that. So if we believe that our goal is to be safe at all costs, then we'll end up attempting very little for God. We will have small ambitions that don't expose us to to too much cost. We'll struggle when we hear Christ speaking about storing up treasures in, on uh, on earth. Uh, we'll find ourselves cheering others on, but not being an active participant. And so we're all about, oh yeah, that's a great thing, go for it. But then we never actually become a part of it ourselves. And we'll, we'll end up playing it safe and accomplishing little for the kingdom. And then finally, this, this worldly way of thinking teaches us to live by sight rather than by faith. When you believe that your safety and security rest entirely on your shoulders, God doesn't practically fit into that world. You don't regularly ask God for wisdom because you already think that you have all the information, right? I don't have to ask God for it because I can get it, right? I've got the internet. You don't pray for provisions in times of uncertainty because you have a basement full of dehydrated food and bottled water, Right, it's like, so you've you you you've you've thought about all the, the the possibilities. You've thought about all the contingencies. I'm fully prepared. I'm on guard. I mean, nothing can penetrate this. And so, why why seek the Lord? Why pray for His provision when you've already you got it together yourself? You won't seek God's mercy during droughts and floods because you have the Weather Channel right to tell you when the weather patterns will change. And so, again, information right. Uh, I've got someone to tell me what's going to happen, and then yet it's interesting, no matter how much meteorologists try to pin these things down, they just have to always parenthetically say, but we just can't for sure tell you if this thing's going to take a left or a right, right? I mean, was it 42 inches in Hawaii? That's a lot of rain. It's like 42, 44 inches of rain from this, this hurricane. But the, even up to the last, they're saying, we, don't, we, don't, we think it's going to do this, right, but maybe not. So again, we're just, we're just, we get into that mindset, why do we need God's mercy, right? When we, we, know what's, we know what's coming and we've made provisions. You'll wind up thinking that your physical safety and security are God's highest concerns for you, right? And that's not his highest concerns for you, right? God is... In charge of that, right? He cares about that, but it's not his ultimate concern. His ultimate concern is your salvation, 
right? You need to be right with God and then beyond salvation, his greatest concern is your sanctification, right? For you to become more like Christ. And so think about it in in a sense. And I'm not saying just go say, Lord, bring it on. I'm not going to make any provisions for the future. I'm not going to think about any of those concerns and dangers. Just sort of just uh, fly by the seat of my pants and just work in my life. It's not that because, again, Scripture is telling us it's okay to, to, to think ahead and plan and, and all that. It's just you have to realize that those plans may change, right, because God's sovereign. If you don't have that in your heart and mind, that God has the prerogative to do those things and, that, and He's God and you're not, then, then, then you're going to be, you're gonna be dis- disappointed. And so you, 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 you're, you're encouraged to do those things, but again, if, if you... If you make it your goal to just mitigate all those possible threats and dangers, in some way, it's like, so are, are you, you're trying to prevent trials and you're trying to prevent difficulties and challenges in your life, which God ordains for your growth, right? So it's almost like in some ways, if you go too far in that, you're working against your own sanctification because we need trials, right? We need the Lord to strip us of things, to make us dependent on Him, we get way too comfortable. So dangers and threats in this life are real, but the ultimate triumph is Christ. All right? John 16, 32, Jesus told His disciples, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Jesus says you're going to have trouble, there's, there's real danger out there, there are threats and real things to be afraid of. Jesus wasn't out of touch, he had very real enemies, he faced very real danger, people plotted against him in secret, people tried to seize him, mobs tried to stone him at different times and throw him off a cliff. There were very real things out there for him to fear. But as you read through the Gospels, you'll notice how Christ responded to those various dangers and those various enemies. And some of the things that you'll learn about him are this, that he never worked hard to search them out. Right? That is to say, Christ didn't spend a lot of time or make it his mission to learn where they were, what their plots were, who their primary ringleaders were, or where they were meeting. He wasn't interested in solving the danger by gathering a bunch of information. He also didn't try to quarantine the problem. In other words, he didn't try to incite his disciples against his enemies or or use them as a shield to protect himself. Nor did he try to run away and hide. In fact, when he he deemed it was, was the right time set by the Father, the Scripture says he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem and marched there with great resolve. He did the very thing that the Apostle Peter would later challenge all of us to do. And if you want to look at this, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ... Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed 
but is to glorify God in this, in this name. Verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Verse 19, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Entrustment. Right? This word entrust, entrustment or to entrust is it's a word that means to place something alongside of something or someone else or, or in the sense of, of handing something over, in this case as a trust or for protection. This is what Christ said to the Father. And if Christ used this exact same term in the Gospels, it was where Christ says, into your hands I commit my spirit. So it's in this case, in 1 Peter, it's in its present tense, middle voice, imperative mood. So they are to continue and to keep on entrusting themselves to a faithful creator, which clearly is easier to do when life is going well and things are good. But trouble and difficult times raise hard questions about our relationship with God and about His intent and character, especially when the suffering we experience is a and unjust is, is unjust and a result of our obedience to Him. But we do because He is the Creator, which means He is the one who has the authority and power to judge all humanity justly. So we commit our very lives to Him. And then notice, how is that expressed? By continuing to do good. Right? As He says, in doing what is right, that last phrase of, the, of, of verse 19. In other words, by, we, we, this is expressed, this entrustment to God is expressed by continuing to do, think about this, continuing to do the very things that are causing the pain. Continuing to live as a Christian, continuing to be appropriately submissive, going back to those relationships, that, those authority and submissive relationships back earlier in, in, his, in, his, in his epistle, continuing to minister to one another. Because God runs this world. Right? These things that, are, that we face every day are not random. They're not chaotic. They're not things that happen on their own. They happen in the sovereign purposes of God. We mentioned this last time in John 19, what Pilate said to Christ. Um, he says, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus has answered to him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Christ lived out the reality that God, God is sovereign over all the affairs of men, history, and creation. So he didn't have to bow in shame and grovel before Pilate. He could entrust himself. And while entrusting himself to God, he continued to do good. Rather than worrying about what other people were up to or trying to protect himself, he was instead showing people what God is like. Holy, righteous, merciful, forgiving, kind. So we live, it, we live in a frightening world. We, we live in a world full of unseen dangers and unseen enemies. We can try all of those different strategies that society urges us toward. We can put all of our hope and confidence in them, but we'll always come up short if we do that. So what, what is it that guards our way from giving in to our fears? The fact that we have a God who has reached out to us 
We have a king that worked for us and has spoken to us about where to find peace. You, you, don't, you don't find peace in strategies. You don't find peace in guidelines. You find peace in a person. Right? A person who gave himself for you so that you can have confidence that where he takes you is going to be good. And he will help you to overcome your fears because he has overcome the world. That is to say this, and we'll, we'll close with this. Fear is a personal issue. It's a personal matter. It is a relational matter. There's one secular magazine author presented various fears that people have and ways to address them. Here's what he says. He says, if you are afraid of snakes, then watch the Nature Channel. If you're afraid of flying, then distract yourself during the flight. If you're afraid of public speaking, make a mental movie of your speech going well, then play it over and over again in your mind. If you're afraid of the dark, then go into a pitch black room and stay in there until your fears are 50% less. <laughs> thought that was a little odd. Just go in there until your fears are 50%, as if you have like a meter. You know, you're 175, getting there, getting there, 50. Okay, well, I can, I can leave the room, right? Turn on the lights. But these all fall short, right? Because we know that fear is a relational issue. We want someone to be there with us. And only God will never leave us nor forsake us. This is the one who says, don't be afraid. And he repeats himself, don't be afraid. And again, he says, do not be afraid. And and he's not nagging. Right? He says it, and every time he repeats himself, it seems to hit us with more force. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. No, you really don't have to be afraid because I am with you. A lot of people who struggle deeply with fear are rigorous and exacting people that believe that God is watching their every move ready to pounce on them. But to hear a God who patiently perseveres, who is pleased to repeat himself time and time again, this is the ultimate treatment for our fears. Christ is the king, and he is the king who cares for us and is trustworthy, and he loves us. The way that we can honor the king is to say, yes, we trust you. And no matter how much we have grown, we aspire to trust you more and to experience a greater measure of peace. So fear is an, is an issue of trust and relationship. And our tendency, folks, is to look for techniques and strategies and the one, two, three, four steps to alleviate our fears and anxieties. But that is the problem in and of itself because we're looking to deal with our fears and anxieties apart from a relationship. So no matter how much the world tries to help us to deal with our fears, the one thing that they completely leave out is the reality that we have a God who is with us. And as believers, we have to guard against trying to do things to overcome fear that leave this most important reality out of the discussion. The reality that if we know God through repentance and faith in His Son, He is with us and for us. So we need to be careful about these things. We'll come back to this next time, this issue of, of relationship. We've got to be careful. Careful about searching for quick solutions, of just boiling things down to step one, step two, and so forth. Looking for, to, to shallow sources of comfort and focusing on relief rather than on our relationship with Christ. There is a, a better way of addressing fear, and we'll, we'll look at that. Because the thing is, I'm going to give you some... I say that because I'm going to give you some steps. Right? I'm going to give you some things that... Here's, you need to do this, and you need to do this and do this. I'm just saying it's in vain if you, you're, you don't have a, a, a relationship of trust with God. 
At the end of the day, what this comes down to, folks, is by faith, believing God is who he says he is. That is the, that is the core of what we're talking about. When we, we talk about anxiety and, and fear and how to deal with that, we can talk about all these things we can do, right? Pr- very practical steps we can take, but we have to understand this is primarily about our walk with Christ. Psalm 118, and we'll, uh, this will be the last thing just as we leave. Psalm 118, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. O let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Let those who fear the Lord say, His kind, loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. Verse 6, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. Real dangers, real threats, right? But the ultimate goal, folks, is not our personal security and and, and safety, not, not as it relates to this world and this life, right? Our hope is in the Lord. And if He is for us, we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. All right, so we'll pick up there. And again, I promised we would get to Luke 12. That will be our, our main text for next time. We're going to walk through that passage that deals with this and then try to, again, pull out some very practical and helpful ways of, of uh, dealing with that. And then we'll spend one more week talking about specifically uh, sort of um, uh, worry and anxiety and how that fits together with fear and primarily be looking at 1 Peter 5 and what Peter tells us to do there regarding anxiety. Okay, thanks for your time.